take a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, page 1017 in these Bibles in the pew as we come to the last sermon in a series I started back in the fall on 1 Peter. I've not counted up the number of sermons, but I guess it's been about 15 or 20. We come now to the final part of the passage. And by the way, Baxter mentioned at the end of the service there'll be an exit offering, there'll be ushers uh, to receive an offering for the Gideons uh, at the end of the service. I'll try and remind you of that as we come to the end as well. First Peter chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. Hear God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word from this, uh, our elder brother Peter, your disciple. We ask you to be our teacher. Uh, we have great needs. Uh, here today. Father, some of us live with shame, false guilt, um, lack of assurance. May you use these moments now to help us grow more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. What have we learned so far, if you've been with me over the duration of sermons from First Peter? Well, we learned that the author was a disciple of Jesus named Peter. He was a fisherman. He was outspoken by his own nature. He uh, became the informal spokesman for the disciples. He denied Christ on the night Christ was arrested before his crucifixion. But he was restored to his relationship to Christ and to his position in ministry after Jesus' resurrection. He ultimately is put to death for his Christian beliefs. But his life shows us that failure in the past does not nullify usefulness in the future. He tells us here in 1 Peter, we are a chosen people with a living hope that God calls us to live holy lives, to put off malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, to put on purity and love. Tells us that we as believers are living stones which God is making into a spiritual household, that we are people of God's own possession, and because of that we have great value. <clears throat> he tells us we are aliens and strangers in this world. He talks a lot about submission and submission to those in authority, and he uses Jesus as the prime example. 
And he shows us how submission can be a powerful weapon for witnessing for Christ. So we are called to submit to kings and governors and those in authority, sometimes even to bad bosses, even to bad marriage partners. We looked at being faithful to God even when being treated unfairly. We saw the victory of Christ's suffering and its triumphant consequences in chapter 3. Then we moved on to chapter 4. He told us to be sober-minded in prayer, to love each other dearly, to offer hospitality without complaining. And then in recent weeks, we looked at suffering in the Christian. We looked in chapter 5 at how God has raised up shepherds for the flock within the church, elders, and gave words to younger men. And then when we were last together in 1 Peter, we saw the opening verses here about humble yourselves under God's mighty hand and casting our anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And then Peter now closes. He's going to close the letter the way he began it, rejoicing in the God of all grace in Christ. So the theme throughout the letter has been how to live faithfully for Christ in a hostile culture. And that's why I chose it to preach at this time as our culture becomes more and more hostile toward the Christian faith and toward us as Christians. So let's talk about endurance. I want to talk about two things. First, if we're to endure, we need to know our enemy. And then we're also, we need to know what God is doing in us. I mentioned uh, several books when I first started the series. I told you of several books I used to prepare. And one that, most recent book I have, the newest book, is R.C. Sproul's book on First and Second Peter called Be Diligent About Your Calling. Uh, that has been a tremendous help. And on this point, it was especially a good help. Let's look at verse 8. He tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When he says be sober-minded, he wants you to be awake. He wants you to be alert and not in some kind of stupor, not checked out mentally. And so the reason for that is that you and I have an enemy, an enemy who's very active, and he's called the devil. And we can make great errors to overestimate the role of the devil in day-to-day life, and we can certainly make an error as to underestimate his work. But the word he uses, the metaphor for the devil, is somewhat strange. And that is he calls him a lion. The Bible uses the metaphor of a lion, but typically not for Satan. Typically that is a positive kingly metaphor. The metaphor most often used for, for Satan is a serpent. A serpent who seeks to lie and to accuse and to destroy. And so Jesus himself was described as a lion of Judah. But here Peter, and he doesn't tell us why, we can only guess, refers to the devil as a lion. Perhaps to show how ferocious he is or how deadly he is. And he says that he is our adversary. That means your opponent. If you're a Christian here this morning, if, you, if you're trusting in Christ, you have an active opponent. All things are not neutral. And his goal is to ruin you. He seeks your ruin. He seeks to neutralize any effectiveness you may have for God. Someone has said life in this world does not become complicated until we become Christians. And that is because for following Christ, we willingly obey Satan, even without knowing it. But once we are rescued by Jesus, then we are a prize he does not easily release. 
And so his goal is to trip us up, and he, he, he does so in a variety of ways. He seeks to take away your confidence in Christ. Is that really true? Is the gospel really true? Uh, is Christ really real in my life? He seeks also to take away your assurance. Well, maybe Christ is real, but maybe my faith is not. Look at me. I'm a mess. Look at the sin in my life. If I really love God, Satan will say, if you really love God, if you really believe that, you wouldn't be doing what you just did. And he can take away our confidence, and if he does, he can render us spiritually impotent. He says he accuses us. He's the accuser. You ever been accused of something? I saw what you did. I know what you did. I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell the teacher what you did, or I'm going to tell the coach, or I'm going to, I'm going to report you. And you say, I didn't do it. He's the accuser. Well, here's a good question I hadn't thought about much until this week. We know that Satan is the accuser. We also know the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. So here is the accuser. Here's the Holy Spirit. How can you tell the difference? How can you tell the, the difference when, 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 when you are rightfully being um, convicted of sin in your life? How do you know, well, this is just the enemy my adversary trying to accuse me or whether it's the Holy Spirit rightfully, so to speak, putting his finger on an area saying, you need to give that attention. Well, I think it has to do with the purpose behind those. The conviction of the Holy Spirit when he convicts of sin is painful, but it's to redeem, it's to cleanse, and repentance can be painful, but there's a sweetness to it because the Holy Spirit is guiding us to the Savior. Satan, on the other hand, his goal is not to redeem you, it's to ruin you. And so he, he convicts to cripple. He convicts to destroy. Someone after the first service wisely told me in their own life, he said, you know, what meant the most was in Romans 8.1 when it says there's no condemnation now for those of us in Christ. And he said, and when I would drag up things from the past, it was just like, condemnation, condemnation. Uh, he said, I finally had to face the fact that was the enemy just trying to bring sin up in my life to condemn me, not to try to get me to confess it and to repent. That's why some of you perhaps, let me ask you this, some of you in a crowd this size, uh, uh, those of us that are pastors, we, we talk to people who sometimes will refer back to something 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And they just can't seem to get past it. Something wrong that they did. Maybe a whole string of things wrong they did. And they just say, I just feel so guilty about that. It's not that anyone else is holding it against them. They just say, I just feel so bad. Well, there comes a point in time, brothers and sisters, to where you say, Lord, I've confessed that to you. I have made restitution or reconciliation or whatever I could. It's in the past. This is tripping me up. This has got to be spiritual warfare. And I am, just, I am moving on past this, and you need to resist the devil at that moment and see it for what it is, that it's spiritual warfare, that it's not necessarily the Holy Spirit bringing it up, uh, but that it's spiritual warfare from the devil. Peter knew this firsthand. He knew firsthand what it was like to underestimate the devil. We have this very unique account at the Last Supper when Jesus is... Gathered with his disciples, he institutes the Last Supper. Within hours, he'll be arrested, later crucified the next day. And many things happen at that supper. But in 
Part of what happened is Jesus says, one, before the night's over, one of you will betray me. And then he tells Peter, you'll deny me three times before dawn, basically, before the cock crows. And, of course, Peter says, there's no way, there's no way. And then Jesus says this to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Well, that night in the courtyard in front of that servant girl and the others that were gathered in the early morning hours by that fire, Satan sifted Peter like wheat. And he tempted him. And Peter knew, Peter knew in himself now that you and I, we are no match on our own for our enemy, the devil. We need the whole armor of God. So what are we to do? He tells us in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Some people think, some Bible scholars think that means that we, you resist him by being strong in your faith, in the amount of your faith or in the quality of your faith. Others, and this makes more sense to me, say they think being firm in your faith means being deeply rooted in the biblical doctrines that the Scripture teaches, that we know what we believe, that we understand who we are and who the devil is and what the spiritual life, the Christian life is. And so that knowledge, that doctrine, helps us then even in spiritual warfare. But he also reminds us we are not alone. These are the same kind of sufferings being, being experienced by our brothers in, in the world. So if you think today, if you say, look, the spiritual struggles I'm going through right now, I mean, the kinds of things I'm dealing with this morning, the temptations I, I face, the troubles I'm going through, that's just unique with me. Boy, I wish I had it together like everybody else in this room. Not so. This is just common. This is... Uh, shared experiences uh, that we all in Christ have. Okay, let's move on. The second part is, what is God doing? If we're to endure, we need to know what God is doing. And I want you to look closely at verse 10 and following. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, and look at these four things, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What is God doing? First, he is the God of all grace. He's just not the God of grace. He is not just a gracious God. He is the God of all grace. You know what that means? Well, it means lots of things, but it especially means that every good thing that you experience comes from the gracious hand of God. Every good thing. The fact that we arrived here today safely. The fact that we have healthy enough bodies even to come here today. We'd say that's a good thing. That's a, that is a blessing from God. And all of us should recognize such things and work to recognize. Uh, when things go right, do you thank God? When things go the way you hope they do, do you thank God? When you go through a day and have meaningful interaction with other people, do you thank God? Some of us here have read the books of Johnny Erickson Tata, who years ago, I guess it's been more than 40 years ago now, as a teenager, dove into the waters of the uh, backwaters of the Chesapeake Bay and struck something and has 
been a quadriplegic ever since. And uh, God has used her in a very unique way through writing and speaking and ministry, especially to the disabled community. I happened to see her on television just a couple of days ago being interviewed, uh, she and her husband. But I remember something from long ago in her first book uh, because she wasn't a believer when that happened to her. And it was really in the, uh, the months and, and years that followed that she came to a strong faith in Christ. But she said that um, in the hospital, if you can imagine, your life goes from being a popular, well-known, in her circles, person, uh, attractive young lady with kind of the whole world in front of her, and then to lose that in an instant. And there she is in a, a hospital, cannot move from her neck down, and dependent now on everyone for all of your bodily needs and, and just the sheer shock of that to you and to your family. And so this notion of thanking God um, was presented to her, and she thought about that and thought, what can I thank God for? I'm strapped to this bed that then is flipped upside down, you know, throughout the day, and, and then I'm turned... And so I remember, among other things, she said, so I started with small things. She said, I began to thank God when the food arrived warm. Thank you, Lord, for the eggs. But especially thank you that they were still warm when they brought them to me. You get the point. Of recognizing every good thing coming from the gracious and good hand of God. He is the God of all grace. And what is he doing? He's doing these four things. He's restoring. Some of you have restored a house or restored a car. You take something old and you try to make it new again. Uh, to restore means to take something old and make it new. When 2 Corinthians 5 says that if we are in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are new creatures in him. Well, we are new, but he's making us new. Uh, here in this life, but ultimately in the next. And so we, we see God's restorative process at work in us, and typically that process is painful. It involves some degree of suffering, and suffering is a broad term. It might be circumstantial. It might be in your own life. It might just be, uh, it could be health. It could be uh, many, many things. But God uses it to perfect us as he restores us to make us new in Christ. Second, he will confirm you. He is in the work of confirming you, believer, through what you're going through. One writer put it, God has a purpose behind every problem. He uses circumstances to develop character. God always uses circumstances to develop character. And so no one is immune from that. No, should we be, um, should we be immune from that? I've got this quotation here. I don't know where I got it years ago, but I wrote it down. So here it is, the great quotation from someone. They taught us if you did not know who said something, say something like, was it not Charles Hodge who said? <laughs> Here's what I wrote down. God uses problems to draw you closer to himself. As scripture says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those who are crushed in spirit. Your most profound and intimate experiences of worship will likely be in your darkest days. When your heart is broken, when you feel abandoned, when you're out of options, and when the pain is great, and you turn to God alone. 
It is during suffering that we learn to pray our most authentic, heartfelt, honest prayers. When you are in pain, you do not have the energy for superficial prayers. I wish I would written that. When you are in pain, you do not have the energy for superficial prayers. Johnny Erickson Tata, whom I mentioned, noted, When life is rosy, we may slide by with knowing about Jesus, with imitating him and quoting him and speaking of him, but only in suffering will we know Jesus. You will learn things about God in suffering which cannot be learned any other way. And so we desire for God to, in that restorative process, give me patience, Lord. It only will follow that he will put you in circumstances that develop patience. That means they will test your patience. Strengthen me, Lord. He's going to put you in situations where it probably shows how weak you are, and you have to trust him. Increase my faith, Lord, and he puts us in situations where we have to believe and where we are overcome with doubt and we have to believe him. We look at examples in the Bible. There's Joseph, sold by his brothers. Why did God have him in prison for 13 years, from age 17 to age 30, before lifting him up to power in Egypt where he could help many people? He could have done it some other way, but he didn't. Why did he have Jeremiah thrown into an awful pit? Why was Daniel in the lion's den? Why was the apostle Paul beaten so many times, three times shipwrecked? A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Can you imagine holding on to some board to keep you afloat all night long in an ocean? Couldn't God have done it some other way? Of course he could have. But he didn't. He chose to use difficult circumstances in their life, and he was glorified through it, and they developed to be stronger as a result. Earlier in the service, we used a descriptive term about providence, from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me give you a shorter one from the shorter catechism. Uh, from the, this sounds. Let me give you a, a shorter one from the larger catechism. Next time I'll just say, here's some words about providence. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions in his own glory. And so that's what, that's what God is doing. The third thing, he will strengthen you, it says. So he's not only restoring, he's strengthening. What does it mean to be stronger? We all want to be stronger. I bet if we surveyed every person in here and say, Christian, do you desire to be stronger? Of course. How? In trials? In my witness for Christ? In being salt and light in the world? I wish I had a stronger faith. Peter says God will produce strength in you through trials. So when I want a trouble-free life, that seems to be what we think the way life ought to be, I'd like a trouble-free life, no suffering, no problems, everything go as planned, everything be easy. In re reality, what I'm asking for is I want to be a weak person because that would be the result. If God builds strength through trouble, then if we want a trouble-free life, we want to be weak. And I don't think any of us want that. And so Peter is reminding them, this is what God's doing. After you've suffered for a little while, remember that God is at work. He's doing these things, and he includes restoring and includes strengthening. And the last thing he mentions, he will establish you. 
That's a term from the Psalms, when God established the foundations of the earth. In Colossians, Paul speaks of the Colossians continuing in their faith, established and firm, not moved away. So what God is doing, he is He wants you as he grows you, as you are sanctified, as you become more like Christ, as you mature in Christ, to be more and more on stable ground, that you are established and not easily moved before him. How is this possible? Well, verse 11 tells us it's possible because to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That means he has all power. It's possible because of who God is. The reason we can trust that God is doing this is because God has the authority and the power to do it. Now, for the last minute or so, i got a couple of scattered thoughts just to cover the last few verses. It would be tempting to leave out verses 12 and following. They're just kind of tagged on there, but here's a few notes. Who is Silvanus? By Silvanus, say, where would that guy show up from? I ain't heard of him before. Well, most scholars... Not me. Most people that are supposed to know these things, that I buy their books. They say, you buy their books. <laughs> I use the books. <laughs> Sorry. That's one of the benefits of being a pastor here. You supply me with resources like that. Most scholars assume this is another way of spelling Silas. He's mentioned numerous times in the Bible. He traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. Presumably, Peter wrote this letter, entrusted it to Silas, and he took it to the recipients of it, ultimately to you and me today. He mentions those in Babylon. She who is at Babylon, uh, send you greetings. Uh, it's pretty well understood. That was code name for Rome, that, that Peter was in Rome and the church there was sending their greetings. I love that he mentions Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Peter was the primary source. Much of the Gospel of Mark is, is told from Peter's standpoint. So Mark was saying, tell me what happened. He wrote it down. And so we have Peter's perspective. And uh, even though Paul had said, we're not taking Mark with us. He had deserted them on a previous journey. So we see Peter had used him, and they were comrades in ministry, and they, they worked together, and he was like his spiritual father. By the way, okay, doesn't fit the sermon, but you need to know this. I just read this three days ago or so. Scientists have uncovered a fragment of the Gospel of Mark written on papyrus and later used to make an Egyptian mummy mask. It was found in Egypt. And they believe the text scheduled to come out to be published next year dates to the 80s A.D. Now, for those that are into biblical textual criticism, if they are correct, and it certainly seems that they are, then this will be the first New Testament manuscript discovered from the first century. And this is huge. Um, and so that's Mark's, Mark's gospel. Two last things, 5.14 says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Different cultures have different ways of, to express affection and friendship. The danger, what he's warning against, is us keeping one another at arm's length and being cold to one another. In Christian fellowship, we should take the lead in showing love to people and in confirming and conveying our acceptance and love for them. In a hostile culture, we desperately need the strong community with other believers. It's my opinion. I'm no prophet, and nor the son of a prophet. But I think we've got days ahead of us where we're going to experience Christian community like we've never had before. There are bright days ahead for the church. Uh, and I think because of the culture and what's going on in the world, I think we will begin to experience Christian culture 
Christian community in ways we've never had before. And our need for one another will be stronger than ever. Last of all, he concludes with a benediction. I conclude with an invitation. Are you in uh, the race? Are you in the marathon of the Christian life? Uh, If not, I invite you to suit up with the righteous garments of Christ uh, and join in. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for our elder brother, Peter, who not too long after these words were written, um, history tells us, was crucified uh, for being a Christ follower. Uh, We pray that we, especially as we experience trouble in various forms in our own lives, in our families, around us, in the workplace, in marriages, and uh, health issues, so forth, that we will look to you and trust you and not panic, but realize you are working to establish and strengthen and to restore. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together a song that puts a number of these thoughts into words. Oh, church, arise. Mm-hmm.